Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Good evening, and thank you for being here at Park Avenue Synagogue. All those who are physically here in the room who will have an opportunity to ask questions, all those who are with us via live stream or listening to this in days to come on Park Avenue Synagogue podcasts or some other media vehicle of your choosing, uh, we here at Park Avenue Synagogue have, since October 7th, been keeping all our attention, all our energy on what is going on with our brothers and sisters in Israel, um, the horror of October 7th, the the heroic deeds of the IDF um, to defend Israel's right to self-determination and self-defense, to see the human dimensions of this narrative, both in our engagement in uh, travel education to Israel, but also um, bringing those voices here to the Bima, the families of hostages, the conversations we've had with those caring for the displaced, the traumatized. Uh, there are so many sub-narratives uh, to what is going on globally uh, since October 7th. And in the last few weeks, we have been watching very carefully what's going on in the International Court of Justice. And that is what this evening's conversation is going to be devoted to. And it is a great, great honor to welcome uh, my dialogue partner. It's not going to be such a dialogue. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions because you know the material far better than I. That's why we brought you in. Menachem Rosensaft. Um, Mr. Rosensaft, Menachem Rosensaft, was born in 1948 in the displaced persons camp of Bergen-Belsen in Germany. The son of two survivors of the Nazi death and concentration camps of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. Menachem Rosensaft is adjunct professor of law at Cornell Law School, general counsel emeritus of the World Jewish Congress, and a past president of Park Avenue Synagogue. I'm very glad that's in there. (laughs) He received his JD degree from Columbia Law School in 1979, having received an MA degree from the writing seminars of John Hopkins and a second master's in modern European history from Columbia. He has taught about the law of genocide at Cornell Law School since 2008 and at Columbia Law School since 2011. Menachem has long been a leader in Holocaust and genocide remembrance activities and was deeply involved in the early stages of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Beginning this month, he will teach courses on anti-Semitism in the courts and in jurisprudence for both Cornell Law students and undergraduates. He's written prolifically on these issues. Most recently, we've been reading him in the press and hearing from him on various news channels. Um, Please join me in welcoming Menachem Rosenthal. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Um, Menachem, last week, or a few weeks ago, the, um, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, uh, the United Nations' top judicial body, 
um, heard arguments in the case brought by South Africa, I believe in late December, accusing Israel of acts of omissions that are, quote, genocidal in character against Palestinians in Gaza. So by way of introduction, and I'm not a lawyer nor an international jurist, um, can I just begin with some, some definitions? Sure. Um, what is the International Court of Justice? How did it come about? What authority it has? Who are its members? Just so we can sort of level set the conversation so we can understand what this legal body in The Hague actually is. Okay, the, the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, as you correctly point out, it's the supreme judicial body of the United Nations. It is the successor of a similar body that had existed under the League of Nations. Its members are the members of the United Nations. The ICJ does not have jurisdiction over individuals. It has only jurisdiction over countries, member nations, and can provide so in disputes between two member nations, they can bring the dispute before the ICJ, or it can provide advisory opinions at the request of the UN Security Council. There are some other um, functions, but that's mostly it. There are 15 permanent members. They are elected by the UN. Um, they are usually very prominent jurists or um, individuals with deep judicial experience in their respective countries. The president of the ICJ at the moment is an American, very highly regarded, with, uh, came out of the legal, legal wing of the State Department most recently. And by and large, it is a non-political body. I say by and large. There are some exceptions. And I imagine we'll get to that. And so tell me uh, to the, uh, to me, someone untrained in these things, um, what exactly has taken place? What are the stakes? Uh, what is the authority of this body? Um, what's happened in the last... Uh, month uh, with this case brought by South Africa. Okay, let me step back a little bit. There is such a thing as the Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, so the Genocide Convention. A little bit more on that in a few minutes, but it is the one convention that deals with a particular defined crime. Other crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity and such, are international crime, but they, they have no relationship to the ICJ. The Genocide Convention does have one because members of the member states who are signatories to the Genocide Convention can bring a case against one another for on accusations of violation of the Genocide Convention before the ICJ. It's a sort of a strange 
part of the convention, which is why the uh, South Africa, which has zero to do with the conflict in the Middle East, other than being a basically a proxy for Hamas, uh, but South Africa could bring its case, and why I believe the Israelis decided that they needed to reply because this is not a forum that they wanted to dismiss out of hand. Right. So I just want to name sure. that it's very curious, right? It's not that it governs everyone, right? One of the elephants in my mind in this room is why aren't they uh, convening uh, regarding uh, the crimes of October 7th, independent of politics? You're saying that's out of the jurisdictional uh, realm and Hamas is not a participant or a signator, so it's only two participating countries who have signed on the Genocide Convention who can bring a case one against the other. Right, and, and you have the additional wrinkle that South Africa, not being, shall we say, an honest player in this game, or, but uh, acting in good faith, could have brought in Hamas, if not as a legal party, at least highlighting it. But of course, that, that wasn't part of what they wanted to do. And Israel did bring it in, but again, Hamas has very little interest in um, paying any attention to it. So why, other than, or maybe it's as simple as that, Hamas, uh, that South Africa is serving as proxy for Hamas, but how did that happen that South Africa brought this case, and why does Israel actually care? Um, let me, a, cu a couple of years ago, uh, Ukraine brought Russia before the, uh, in, uh, before the ICJ. That was sort of a prolonged proceeding. Um, the ICJ issued interim, <clears throat> interim ruling calling for a cessation of hostilities. As I'm sure you know, uh, Mr. Putin basically disregarded it if he even paid any attention to it at all. And that was it. If you are Russia, you can get away with it. If you are Israel and you care about your reputation in the international community, you don't want to leave the charges go unanswered. What is, again, I'm sort of taking things out of context, but what is very useful is not only the fact that the UK and the US and France have repudiated the South African charges, and but, that, but that Germany have actually asked to intervene. So Germany will now have an opportunity to present a case, present arguments on Israel's behalf. And while the, a judgment of the ICJ has no teeth, has no way of enforcing anything, it's not something, you don't want a judgment against you. It's sort of, it's something that comes back to haunt you consistently. 
Um, so what's well, part of this this bigger narrative of that's playing out in the press, in in public opinion, uh, uh, right. and it, it's some sort of uh, uh, it would be a, a black guy that the international community is seeking to inflict, yeah, on, to turn Israel from victim that's to correct. aggressor. Here. By the way, we just worth remembering in somewhere I think it may have been 2004 but I may or a little later I don't remember the time but the Security Council asked the ICJ for an advisory opinion on the wall that was being built to separate mostly Israel proper from the West Bank that um, wall that's going through and they had hearings. This was an advisory opinion to guide the Security Council, ending in a 13 to 1 vote that the wall violated international law. Uh, fun fact, the vote against it was the American judge at the time, Tom Bergensall, who was also one of the youngest uh, survivors of Auschwitz and uh, who passed away within the past year. Why am I mentioning it? You have the advisory opinion, 13 to 1 vote, the wall exists, it's there, and it sort of, it hasn't affected anything. Would it have been better to be without it? Yes. On the other hand, a judgment of the ICJ, as opposed to other political things, is likely to be a fairly judicial document with arguments that can come back to haunt Israel at different times. Right. Which is, and by the way, the presentation that the Israelis made last week, I think it was a week ago today, was actually very solid. Yeah, yeah. I watched uh, Tal Becker's yeah. uh, present. I didn't watch all of it, but yeah, I watched Tal Becker's presentation, who we heard from on the recent trip to Israel. Uh, the so so give us the, a bit of the the color commentary, the inside. Uh, what was the case of South Africa? What was the response of the of Tal Becker and and the Israeli jurists? How did they? make their came acts and omissions that are genocidal in character, and how did Israel respond to those? And then um, what is to come? Do they come down with a decision next week, next month, 10 years from now? Uh, so a lot there, but okay. that's why you're here. Okay. S let's start with a question you didn't ask. <laughs> the case is bogus. I mean, let's understand first and foremost what genocide means. Genocide is a legal term. It's not something like, oh, I don't know, murder, and there are about 500 different definitions of murder, and you can go back to the Talmud, and you can go back to St. Thomas Aquinas, and you can go into the, every single state has its own. So, so what is the definition the of definition genocide? The definition of genocide is, it's a crime of intent where one country or unit, and it does not have to be in wartime, one unit has the in, intends 
to destroy in whole or in part a national, religious, ethnical, or racial group as such. In other words, the purpose of the exercise in question has to be the destruction of the group. The fact that people are being killed has to be the goal. It cannot be a collateral byproduct. So that uh, during the Holocaust, the killing of Jews was the goal of the final solution. It was not, you know, it happened independent of anything else. In Rwanda, which is probably the next best element, the Hutu government intended to murder and gave specific orders to murder Tutsis. In this particular instance, whatever else you can argue, the intent of the Israel government in waging war is to eradicate, eliminate Hamas and to make sure that it does not show up again as an existential threat. The suffering, the killing, or the death of and displacement of Palestinians is a byproduct, which doesn't mean that it's not deplorable. And as Tal Becker himself said, every death is, d deserves our compassion. But it's not the purpose. Secondly, there is no intention by anyone in the Israel government who is not, I think the term of art is a right-wing lunatic, but anyone who is not, there is no intention of eliminating the Palestinian presence in Gaza so that everyone, including Netanyahu, are on record as saying that the Palestinians will return now. It will cost probably 20, upward of $20 billion to rebuild Gaza City and Khan Yunus. That's a different story. So that in that context, the claim that Israel is committing genocide is bogus. It does not answer, and I want to make sure that we don't get into that. We could, can get into it later, but it's not part here. It doesn't answer the question of whether Israel or Hamas is or has been committing war crimes. It does not answer a question whether there may be uh, acts that fall within the definition of crimes against humanity, which are not subject to the ICJ. And by the way, one of the things I'm nervous about is for the ICJ to, when they ultimately came out, come out with the, either the interim or the permanent uh, decision, to make some comments like, while it is not within our purview, we note the presence of. And that, that could be dangerous on a number of other fronts. But that's it now. What did the South Africans do? They cobbled together a number of circumstances and statements. Well, first of all, they started off by having a kind of, by the way, reference to October 7th. 
but then pivoted very quickly that the Hamas-Israel war was a kind of continuum of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict going back to 1948. And the, you know, October 7th was sort of glossed away. It's just the, the latest we, right, but round. Also, but it was the latest round. And the moment you start, and you know that, the moment you start referring to Hamas terrorists as militants or resistance fighters or at freedom, as freedom fighters, you have couched their, them as legitimate players. I mean, we all respect freedom fighters and resistance fighters. We are not necessarily as respectful of individuals who murder families in their homes, uh, slaughter children, or rape women and children. So the, the way that they are portrayed is important. South Africa didn't. But then what South Africa did was to take a succession of out-of-context comments, some just heartfelt, some genuinely offensive, and take those as being indicative of the position of the Israel government. Uh, you have people like uh, Betala Smotrich and Ben Gvir and others and who are talking about nuking Gaza, burning Gaza. Uh, at the end of the war, we want, all the, we want to have all the uh, Palestinians deported. These are offensive statements. But on the other hand, they are not indicative that they are in any way, shape, or form part of government policy. And no, but they are... I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm on your side. I right. want to be very clear yeah. about this. Yeah. But they are members of the coalition yes. in Israel. I mean, yes. these, and what was your phrase? These right-wing lunatics. lunatics. Yes, yeah. yes, Surface. exactly. Yes, uh, yes. And I think that we can use that as a sort of defined term. I think, um, you, I think Judge Schweitzer will accept, agree that we can take judicial notice. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but no, the, the point is they are members of the coalition. And that is a problem. And it makes it more difficult to counter. But the answer is, just because you're a member of a government doesn't mean that you are expressing government right. policy. And in this particular instance, when it comes to genocide, a charge of genocide, you have to take everything in overall context. Once you, and this is where I'm coming back to, once you accept the proposition that Israel is not trying to destroy the Palestinians, it is not trying to remove the Palestinians from Gaza. It, I mean, the, 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 the question now is, are the Palestinians going to have a state of their own, or are they going to be uh, ruled by some local administration other than the Palestinian Authority, all that is a political issue, but it co contradicts the argument that there's a genocide being planned. 
Right. Because if there's genocide being planned, there ain't going to be no Palestinians there. Correct. And was that the nature of Israel's response? In large part. I mean, in large part, it was, number one, we are def Israel's argument is, correctly, we are def we embarked on this war because Hamas engaged in what can only be described as a pogrom in, on October 7th. And one of the attributes of Hamas is that it is, in fact, a genocidal organization. I don't think we can say that October 7th constituted genocide because it's, you know, they, I don't think they, they went so far as that intent on that particular day. But Hamas's charter uh, defined as its goal the elimination of the state of Israel, the Zionist entity, and the Jews living there between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean and have that entity replaced by an Islamic caliphate. And by the way, if you one is interested, the, the charter is nicely anti-Semitic in nature. It quotes liberally from the protocols of the elders of Zion as to the Zionist desire of world domination. So there's enough there for good, um, for good material. But that, the fact that uh, Hamas and it, uh, Palestinians, Islamic Jihad, perpetrated uh, October 7th, and that Hamas leaders then said publicly on Lebanese television and elsewhere that not only were they proud of it, but they would do it again and again and again, provide Israel with the legitimacy to defend itself and to prevent it from happening, not just again, 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 but not happening again ever. So that's the, that's the underlying minor fact that the South Africans glossed over and that Israel emphasized. Now, uh, Israel also said, well, we are taking all humanitarian measures to protect, to tell people to leave. <clears throat> that only goes so far because if you are told to leave and then you go to an area and that area gets bombed the next week, there's, you know, you can't, you can't really absolve yourself of responsibility, but it still doesn't, you know, if you're being charged with genocide, uh, other crime that may or may not be at issue are not before the court. And, and do you think, you know, I, I heard this, uh, or it was an op-ed with Thomas Friedman had interviewed uh, Blinken at Davos uh, yeah. the other day. And I think there was an offhand, it wasn't the point of the article, but uh, it basically signaled that the world, the rest of the world is on a different loop of information 
of social media and news and journalism covering the war, that the truths that we are in a post-truth world, and what you and I see as self-evident and the crimes of October 7th are not, uh, that's not the narrative that a lot of people on this planet are necessarily reading. So is it, I don't know if this is a fair question, but is it ignorance? Is it anti-Semitism? Is it some sort of, I mean, the, you, you call it a bogus case um, uh, that Hamas is using South Africa as a proxy in this. Is it, uh, is, is it just base anti-Semitism or, or, that, or that's too broad a brushstroke? Anti-Semitism is part of it. And the South Africans have distinguished themselves. The South African government has distinguished itself of em in embracing anti-Semitism. You know, the, the old definition of anti-Semitism, it's to dislike Jews more than absolutely necessary. So in this particular case, the South Africans are embracing the Hamas case with much more uh, enthusiasm than necessary. They received a Hamas delegation in, in Johannesburg, or in Cape Town, I don't remember which, so that's a problem. The other side of it is, and look, we can't ignore it. At the moment, yes, 1,200 Israelis were butchered. Uh, over 200 were taken captive as hostages. Over 100 are still there. At the same time, we cannot lose sight of the fact that thousands, I'm not going to take the Hamas uh, health ministry figures at face value, but thousands of Palestinian civilians, women, children, infants, have died in this. There is a humanitarian crisis in uh, Gaza. Uh, by all accounts, they may be, if, they, if food does not get delivered into Gaza very, very quickly, there may be a starvation problem superimposed on lack of medical care, superimposed on, on inadequate humanitarian relief. That is not... Israel's responsibility, but in the context of an argument, whether it's before the ICJ or in the context of a uh, discussion held in Davos or anywhere else, that can't be ignored. It can't, you know, you cannot take the position which you hear occasionally by some, uh, by some Israeli figures we're just going to go through and we don't care and we're just going to destroy Hamas and never mind what falls in its wake. I mean, I don't know if you saw, but one of the members of the war cabinet, Gadi Eisenkot, who is a former chief of staff, came out very courageously and publicly yesterday in refuting Netanyahu's views and saying, one, we need to go to elections as quickly as possible. Two, uh, destroying Hamas and being 
having victory over Hamas is a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. And we need to start thinking seriously about some form of a post-war reality. And that, I think, represents the sentiments of many Israelis who are not sympathetic to either Hamas or the Palestinians, but who do understand that a continuing crisis in which thousands of people are being killed can't continue, that the image of shrouds in a bombed out hospital, of shrouds of this size or that size, is a political and human disaster that contradicts Israel's persona of wanting to be a democratic state that cares about the rights of all who are living under its umbrella. Thank you. I'm going to ask one more question. For half an hour, they're there, they scream, and then they go home. Uh, if you want to do something like that at Cornell, you have to do a four-and-a-half-hour bus ride and come back, and you know, they're not going to do it. The other thing at Cornell is that the administration and the president have been very outspoken, and the, and the dean of the law school, in expressing their horror at what happened, their condemnation of uh, Hamas, and their support for Jewish students so that there is a bit of safety. Having said that, we had a class, during the week after October 7 was spring break. The following week, fall one, break, fall, fall break. break, I'm sorry, fall break, uh, was fall break. And on the following week, one of my students in my class on uh, law of genocide was an Israeli who was very upset that when she came back to classes, everything continued sort of as if nothing happened. You know, class of torts, we're dealing with torts. Secure transaction, everything such. And she asked if she could have some comments at the beginning about it. I said to myself, you know what? I told her, we're going to devote tomorrow's session to discussing what happened and how. And we did, and the ground rules were, anyone can say anything, but it has to be done with mutual respect. And there were students in the class who were sharply critical of Israel, who professed to be anti-Zionist, and that's okay if you express those views in the classroom, and you listen to the others, the others listen to you, and you engage in it without screaming epithets and without uh, demonizing the other person, or even worse, suggesting that a person who is supportive of one side or the other is inherently evil even though that person has absolutely right. no connection personally with the war itself. 
Menachem, you have committed your life to um, memory, to justice, and to peace, um, and to intellectual rigor, and we have gotten a taste of that here during this time. Um, I want to thank you on behalf of all of us um, for giving of yourself uh, uh, to your craft and to being with us this evening. Uh, please join me in thanking Menachem. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul.